The Institute of Directors professional development programmes equip learners with the knowledge, skills and mindset to be enterprising and innovative, enabling organisations to become more productive and competitive. The IOD's programmes ensure directors develop an awareness of their interpersonal skills, legal and business knowledge, financial acumen, ethical questioning, decision-making abilities and the highest standards of professional conduct. The IOD is the only institute in the world to offer internationally recognised qualifications designed by directors for directors under Royal Charter. For more information on IOD training, visit iod.com today. Welcome to the Institute of Directors Business Podcast, a podcast where we interview directors from all over Scotland about their careers and business. I am your host, Marlene Lowe, UK Director for Four Bytes and long-term IOD member. Paul Glass has launched a business transformation business with a twist. Evolveria is a business transformation consultancy that provides business and their people with the internal capabilities to achieve success, change and value growth. With a strong team and experience from a variety of industries and large companies, Paul and his team are selling knowledge. You'll never hear about who their clients are because the focus is on the team knowledge backing Evilveria. The twist in it all is coming back to basics and making change stick for the long run. Well, um, I guess uh, my first um, uh, career uh, choice was to move into retail. Um, mm-hmm. my, my sort of academic background was in consumer and marketing studies and then industrial administration was retail marketing. And at that time, this is where retail was in a very different place uh, yeah. than we see today. I mean, it was really exciting. You know, the, the UK was really booming with retail and it was changing people's lives. And, and uh, I was fascinated by the vibrancy of it. You know? <laughs> So that was um, the the first thing when I when I um, did my first course, um, I actually applied to be a graduate trainee for Kingfisher for B and Q, you know, the big uh, DIY company. And a, a friend of mine, Charles, uh, said, uh, "You know, Paul, a little knowledge is a dangerous thing," and it really resonated with me. <laughs> and I thought, you know, I think I'll do a postgrad then. And uh, I'd actually been offered a position as a graduate trainee by by B and Q. And when yeah. I told them that I decided to go back to studying. They said, that's okay, we understand that. We'll phone you in a year's time and offer you a job. And I thought, that's a very nice way of ending the conversation. Yeah. Little did I know, a year later to the day, they phoned me up and said, are you ready to start working now? And I went, oh, that's given me shivers. (laughs) Fantastic. And and it was a real lesson in the the value of loyalty, you know, how how, Mm -hmm. how you treat people. Because I I was extremely loyal to B&Q. Yeah. in my first few years of my career um, and a great organization at that time they were they were um, heavily rolling out the BQ warehouse format which was very mm-hmm. much modeled in American uh, management methods so that was quite an interesting experience to to be in an Americanized UK business yeah um, but my original um, career choice to move into retail was I had this ambition to have my own retail outlet uh, which would focus on homewares actually yeah. So of course, during uh, that time, I, I knew about this little Swedish organization called IKEA <laughs> Blue Boxes. And um, I was actually headhunted by, by IKEA for a program they called the Big Blue Cheese. Wow. Still to this day, makes no sense to me at all, yeah. but uh, that's typical <laughs> IKEA. And they were looking to, to, for part of their expansion in the UK, to bring in. Um, I'd say senior operational managers from other businesses mm-hmm. to join them and and uh, shortcut their let's say their succession to to grow, yeah. and that was um that was uh, probably the biggest change in my career because you know going from a, um, a culture of of, of being cute DIY quite hard you know um, hard yeah. end going into quite a feminine culture if I can say it like that. <laughs> um, with IKEA, with a huge set of values uh, and, a, and a real depth of culture, yeah. it was quite an eye opener for me. And um, you know, I, I, I make no apologies for loving uh, IKEA. And mm. 
the organization itself, many people see as just a big blue box, um, these big stores, but actually the depth of the organization is amazing. There's a huge value chain, you know, going connecting really the tree to the, to the, to the customer actually enjoying the products and solutions yeah. at home. So I had quite a long career with IKEA, um, um, and I think that career was stimulated by two things, really believing in what the company ethos was about. Mm -hmm. But secondly, there was always an opportunity to develop and grow in such a big organisation, you know. Um, yeah. And that, that um, took me um, from Glasgow, where I was a, a logistics manager, um, all the way down to London, and then I started connecting more globally, and I had this huge ambition um, to work for the owners of IKEA. So IKEA is, without going into the complexity of it and the ownership models, um, <laughs> IKEA is basically a franchise, but it franchises yeah. many of the stores to itself. And um, I was aware of them, them having a concept center in Delft in the Netherlands, mm -hmm. which is actually their legal entity headquarters. So they're yeah. based, everything comes from Sweden, but their legal entities there. And Inter-IKEA Systems um, is really the part of the business which is very heavily influenced by the Camprad family who, who are the owners mm -hmm. of IKEA as a private business. And I always had this ambition to work there. I, I thought Holland would be a really cool country to, to live in, which it was, I can yeah. assure you. But at the same time, to actually um, go into the, the nerve center of IKEA would expose me to huge insights and learnings. And, and, and thankfully, very humbly towards IKEA, it allowed me to travel and see the world and, and see different ways of doing things, different cultures, different insights, mm. which are just stimulated. So even to a, quite a long career in IKEA, I never felt any day was boring. It was always something wow. new. Wow. And I think that's a great credit to the organization. Yeah, um, there's not many people that can say that they've worked a job where they've not been bored when they've worked for a long period of time. That That's amazing. No, it's really quite incredible. Uh, but my, my idea of setting up my own consultancy business, Evelvedia, started in IKEA because yeah. I was fascinated by, IKEA is a conceptually driven company. So mm -hmm. basically, how do you multiply and, and do what they've done, a true global retailer? Mm. How can you do that with so many different people, so many different cultures, so many different thoughts? Mm. And they work with a very clear concept, which is based on proven business mythologies, um, simple as that. And that's really yeah. enabled them to, to grow. And I, I, I very much got in, in, inspired and interested in the way of running businesses through conceptual models, um, mm -hmm. actually. But the other great thing about IKEA was they have a, a real, their, their DNA, their essence is about how they treat people in their organization and also outside of their organization. I know we all get frustrated from time to time shopping in IKEA. <laughs> it's an but, experience you've got to say that it is an experience it, it, it hasn't is, been but, a dad, but it has but, an it, it comes from the, the motto you do your part we do our part to yeah money and and, yeah. and that's really true um they are, they are definitely changing that approach now i must say and <laughs> the, the reason they're changing that approach was their experience of expanding into asia okay because of, because of course we perceive ikea as a low cost I think you get very high quality for the cost uh, mm. of the products in IKEA. But in, yeah. in some of the ex developing markets, IKEA was perceived as a premium brand. Yeah. And with that perception came a need for increased service. And it's come full circle back now that they're really focusing on services in, yeah. in mature markets. Fascinating time. But I, I was also fascinated by their approach to change. And my, my obsession with transformation and change <laughs> came from IKEA. It partly came from the principle that many, many businesses, if you look back 50 or 100 years ago, these huge global leading businesses, how few of these businesses remain today? They've yeah. not seen through change. And I was also curious about how IKEA were always one step ahead of that curve. You know, they, you know they're a very cash-rich organization, mm -hmm. but they treat every single penny and every, every single opportunity with great sincerity. And I, I thought they, they really stimulated me to, 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 to look into change management, transformation management, but always through the eyes of the value of people. You know? Yeah. Um, I mean, if you look at business transformation or transformation topics within businesses, 80% um, of the failures are uh, attributable to people. Mm quite an incredible percentage well it makes sense because people deal with people i think that's something we tend to forget when we think corporations and it becomes almost its own entity in itself but at the end of the day you're still dealing with people 
it's always people to make a change, even if it's high yeah. technology or whatever, you still need people to want to work with it and work with it with the right attitudes and motivations. Yeah. And the interesting thing from that 80% is that about six, just over 60% of those factors are influenceable. Okay. And wow. that's something I really much, very much learned in IKEA. They're yeah. great focus on how they influence uh, people. And, and you'll rarely find an employee from IKEA that's got a bad word to say about that organization. And I think that's a real credit to them. That's I think very in, Sweden, cool, yeah. in Sweden, if you're Swedish, it, it might be slightly different because they, <laughs> they've maybe to deal with it longer. But generally, that's been my experience. And I think that's a great testament. Um, so it was heartbreaking for me to think about leaving IKEA. Mm. But I really wanted to return to Scotland where my family were based. I was doing a lot of commuting. Mm. Um, and I, and I, I thought I was getting to the age where I've built up enough experience. There's a risk that if I don't start what I want to do, uh, going back to my <laughs> original idea of setting up my own business, that I wouldn't have the energy for it. So I, I really consciously decided it was time to leave um, yeah. um, with the best of relationships with the company that I love mm. uh, and, and do my own thing. Uh, and try to put into practice some of the experience and learnings I had from IKEA, but to offer that to all businesses, you know, yeah. it's a huge value chain. They cover so much diversity of business that there was something in it. And, and based on these core principles that I'd learned, you know, over these years. However, just as I was, just as I was packing my boxes, <laughs> an old IKEA colleague got in touch to say there's this amazing job that I think you do a great job in. And it was yeah. for an organisation called RHI Magnesita. Mm -hmm. How many people have heard of them? They're a FTSE 250 company. Um, okay. They're the world's biggest refractory manufacturers. Now, wow. Again, not many people know what refractories are, but you need a refractory product to manufacture any, anything at temperature. So pretty much they're really a, 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 a tier one supplier of all the things that we enjoy. Yeah. Metal, cement, glass, all require refractories products and RHI and Magnesita were two separate companies forming to become one and therefore the global leader and they were looking for somebody to transform their supply chain and um, I really was wanting to pack my boxes but I couldn't let go of this <laughs> amazing opportunity to work for a, a, a truly amazing group of people I have to say yeah. and uh, the, the bizarre thing for me the thing I was curious about should I say was two completely different cultures coming together to do this big global business, a very Austrian-based business in RHI and a Brazilian-based business in Magnesita coming together. So you couldn't imagine two different opposites. coming yeah. together. <laughs> but the energy and the discipline in that organization and the ambition was truly amazing. So I took some time to, to stay in the Netherlands and, and work with them, um, knowing, and they knew always, that I wanted at some point to move on and set my own business up in, in business transformation. Mm. That's a little bit my resume, I guess you would, you would say. Oh, great. So, yeah, you weren't kidding when you said you've got a very good background <laughs> in oh, big businesses. That's amazing. <laughs> I, I think, um, I think it, it's, there's a huge value. I know when you're in a big global business, you're, you're, you're a small fish, even if you're in a senior level, you're a small fish in a big pond. But um, I've always believed that both these businesses have also had a sort of entrepreneurial spirit, mm. spirit and, and, uh, and, 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 and a sense of, you know, you're always working with smaller teams close to you anyway. You know, it's just how you, you, you use that to, to, to extend your influence. Yeah. Um, so I never really felt that I was in huge multinational businesses, even though they were. Uh, and I think um, that's another reason that you can transfer your learnings from such organizations into smaller businesses. I mean, my business is very much focused on providing the capabilities of these businesses, but to SMEs, you know, yeah. um, it's a real a focus of mine at the moment. Um, and, and I think things can be scalable, you know, just because it comes from a big business. Of course, the other thing is that big businesses generally, if they're sustainably successful, there's a lot of value in what you've in, insights and learnings without sharing any of their trade secrets. You know, there's lots of transferable values you can take. So I think it's been a great, um, let's say, uh, development ground for me to, to, to set out a moment with, yeah. with some great people beside me, I must say. I think what fascinates me hearing your story is when you're talking about them, it makes them sound very much like small family orientated value driven companies. 
were actually their their huge conglomerates, which I think for many would almost sound like an oxymoron. How can you have that culture, that close culture of looking after everyone and also be a global world player? Absolutely. I mean, RHI, Magnesite and IKEA are separate in terms of one's publicly owned, one's privately owned. I think best example would be the influence of Ingvar, the, the late Ingvar Kamprad, the, the IKEA and the IKEA. Um, because he, he really had an incredible approach and it's such a huge organisation. I think when I left, over 140,000 people working in this organisation. Mm. Every single one of them knew who he was and what yeah. he stood for and how that affected their day-to-day. And actually, every single person recruited into IKEA, is quite a, it can be quite a, a hurdle getting into IKEA. Yeah. They recruit based on your values, not on your past experience. They're based on, based on your values and your potential for the future. And I think that's a fantastic approach to take to bring that's their secret of success more companies i think should probably take that on board as well recruit for values i I read it once somewhere someone told me that if you've got two people with the same skill sets but one's got a degree and one's got the passion go for the one with the passion not saying that the person with the degree can't do the job but it was more that fit within the culture and that what you you said earlier, the loyalty that you get to a company because they've decided to take a chance on you and look past what's on a piece of paper. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, IKEA experts, uh, I think an academic background can be very helpful, and can be very yeah. valuable. Um, I don't have a huge academic background in what I do and what I think I'm good at and what I'm told I'm good at, uh, not at all. Um, I think the value in showing people that based on their attitudes and motivations and how they, they conduct themselves, they can grow mm. and they can move on to be successful. Um, and you can be successful in any role. I mean, some people take a pride in just doing what, what what's expected of them. Yeah. Some people take a pride in their career. Yeah. I think um, giving the average person the opportunity to do extraordinary things is an incredibly valuable uh, experience and opportunity. And I would put myself into that camp, I would for sure. Yeah. Um, I grew up in the remote part of the north of Scotland. This is where I've relocated <laughs> back to. I never thought when I was growing up that I'd be travelling the world and preaching the concept of IKEA, to be honest. Yeah. So speaking of where you thought you would be before you, you went on this journey, you mentioned you always thought you wanted to, you were always fascinated by retail and wanted to be a part of retail. Where did that fascination and that love of retail come from? I once had a kitchen, this is a very strange story, I once had a kitchen door magnet that said, he who dies with the most kitchen gadgets wins. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it kind of um, uh, uh, quite, quite fascinated me that, uh, that um, you know, at that time of burgeoning retail, back in the 90s, you know, a lot of things were new. A lot of things were new, you know. And... Um, it was a real explosion in, in different store formats, mm. out-of-town shopping, city centre shopping. Uh, you know, this was way before multi-channel or e-commerce yeah. even invented, you know. <laughs> uh, and the physical experience you gave. I mean, to be honest, we were probably quite lazy retailers back then. We, we had people coming to us quite yeah. easily. Um, and uh, my fascination with that was... Um, I would love to say it was because I wanted to provide great service to people, etc., my fascination was was purely driven by the different types of, of retailers coming to the UK or establishing mm-hmm. the UK and the diversity abroad. I genuinely saw people's um, lives getting better um, mm. through what retailer, retailers were offering. And I think retail sometimes has been a, I wouldn't say a maligned profession, but there is a profession to it and doing it. Oh yeah, definitely. It is. And, um, you know, that the time I was... Um, uh, graduating, you know, a lot of my friends were going into other types of business areas and quite a few of them said, you're going into work in a shop, you know? Well, I'm really glad I did. Yeah. Really glad I did. Yeah. So yeah, it was uh, wanting the most kitchen gadgets would uh, set me out. <laughs> <laughs> but it's true that I do feel it, it's a shame that people look down on retail because they really are a pillar stone to our communities. And I mean, you, you, you go into a store and you see someone that's working there. They are the best at customer service. They have to plaster a smile on their face. 
take abuse and not react to it. I mean, they really are amazing people at making sure that, that someone else leaves with a smile on their face, even though they've had to deal with so much abuse during the day and, and stay happy. I've, I've always admired retailers that can have that skill of no matter what's coming at them, they keep their calm facade and they keep calm and they're ready to help the next person. I totally, totally agree. If you ask me who's the most important person in a retail organization, mm. honestly, I'd say it's the checkout operator. Yeah. Because they are the face, they're the, unless you're buying on, online, of course, they yeah. are the face, the interaction. And they're often the people, just as you described, that suffer the brunt of the customer's frustrations. Exactly. You know? Yeah. Um, and uh, I, I think it's um, tragic in a way that we often uh, look down on such. I really think it's, it's terrible and, and we should reward people in those kind of positions. The, let's call them the great people, you know, the people that yeah. actually make business happen yeah. are often those that are not the most rewarded in the business. And I think there's, there's perhaps a lesson for us. Maybe, maybe this pandemic is accelerating, you know, lots of different behaviours and different mm -hmm. approaches. And, and I hope one legacy that we come from that is that we treat people better yeah speaking of legacy do you think is there anything that you feel we've lost along the way when it comes to retail so as we've become more digital moving towards e-commerce is there anything you feel that we've lost in that that element of retail that fascinated you before you know that is a super good question i've never really thought of it before so you put me on the foot there um, and <laughs> but it's really valuable i think um I think the ex there was a great excitement in retail back in the early 90s, I'd say for the early 90s, probably to 2008 when the first you know, real financial crisis happened. Yeah. It was still burgeoning, it was still growing, and it was still experimenting. And there was a great excitement and vibrancy in, mm. the, in the sector. I think what we've lost is perhaps that vibrancy and that excitement because, of course, re retail in the physical format is 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 going going backwards in a way in yeah. terms of store closures. I, I get particularly deep. I would say deeply affected by walking around town centres. My local city centre is Inverness, mm. and the amount of empty shops there. Um, you know, I think that's the thing that we've lost: the sense of how retail can actually build a community. Yeah. Plus, if I look at the parallels of the Netherlands, you know, you will not see in the Netherlands empty shops and city centres. Um, mm. They had a different format. They, they didn't believe in out-of-shopping centres, for example. Yeah. So I think the UK particularly took a different, a very Americanized path for yeah. all of that. And I think that's maybe what I missed today is that we've maybe gone too far in that direction and, and at the expense of our city centres. And we all know yeah. the, the value and importance of those. Um, what do you think could be done to reverse that decision and go back to that mysticism, not mysticism maybe, but the atmosphere, the, the enjoyment of having a vibrant city centre? For me, there will always be an important part to play in physical retailing. Um, yeah. Because online, you, for example, you can't sit on a sofa online. You, know, yeah. <laughs> you, can't, you can't smell fresh bread online. Yeah. Not at the moment anyway, I'm sure you can. <laughs> And I think that there always be a healthy. There should always be a healthy place for physical um, um, interaction. The fulfilment of of shopping may change, so you may be more likely to go to physical shop to experience, yeah, and then be fulfilled in terms of you've been supplied. You know, your delivery is waiting at home for you, if you like. That yeah. for me is is what's exciting about what's possible in the future with retail, mm. and that means giving more space to to be able to display and to be able to experiment and, 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 and experience. You know, I think the rates issue with retail and high streets is a genuine yeah. challenge. Um, and if that can be supported or relaxed in a way, then I think we could actually move forward and see more people return to the high street by mm. giving retailers, understand that retailers have a, quite a difficult model at the moment to follow. Mm. Um, and I know we talk about Amazon and all the rest of it that you know have these very low tax rates and yes they do and maybe there is something to look at there yeah. but um, part of the reason Amazon's been successful is because they're providing what customers want yeah and you know they can never provide the though they are experimenting with it they can never provide the physical experiences that perhaps other uh, established retailers can provide and I, I, I hope that there's a way forward with that but for sure there needs to be more support in my opinion uh, with regional governments, with city centre authorities, with, with rate 
um, you know, landlord ten mm. tenant needs to change in order to make that thrive. And what I really experienced differently in the Netherlands to, to at least in the UK was the strong sense of community and pride in, in town centres. Yeah. So um, maybe we'd call it cafe culture in certain places, but, but, but I would see local events being organised quite regularly yeah. using city centre spaces um, yeah. in a much, much bigger way than I've ever seen in the UK. Yeah. One of the overriding things, particularly in the city I lived in, Delft, a beautiful old city, mm. but the amount of times that there was something happening that brought the community together in their city centre was yeah. unbelievable. Um, That's true. And all of the Dutch cities I've been through, all of them have pride in it. You've got flowers. Visually, it's very appealing. Um, if you just look at Amsterdam with having the waterways, and it's visually a nice place to spend time where unfortunately in Scotland you don't really have that here. It's, it's a bit grey. Maybe that's because of the buildings, etc. But you certainly don't have that vibrancy with the flowers and everything that you do in many Dutch cities. Sure. But you know, I, I do believe that in order to grow, we can always cut costs. That's yeah. in a way the easy part, the lean approach has got a place, of course. But to truly grow, you do need to invest at some point. And I do think it's yeah. time to, there's a necessity to invest in city centres, invest in retail, and all the other supporting businesses that come with that. You know, the, the pandemic's brought this great movement of away from office working, yeah. you know, to home working. That's going to create a big, big gap. And I, and I think we'll, we'll need to, not just from office work or services, and do more for, for city centre communities. And, and then, of course, you look at more rural communities, you know, where the traditional old high street, if you like, yeah. was vibrant maybe 20, 30 years ago. These, those, I feel, have got the biggest challenges. Mm. And, they, and there we need to do something more, whether it's building more homes using old city centres or town centres. Um, this could be a way forward um, yeah. rather than big cities. So let's go from change of retail and our communities to business transformation. Mm. <laughs> so tell me about, and forgive me if I'm saying this wrong, Evolveria? Pretty good, pretty good. Um, <laughs> Evolveria is how I pronounce it. But, uh, Evolveria. <laughs> to their own. It's, it's based on um, uh, Latin for Evolveria, mm. which is to transform, change and grow. Um, and uh, we just added an I at the end because it's in many ways you yeah. can do that. Um, so yeah, that, that was, I was a bit surprised that the name was available because I'd managed to register quite consistently as a company name and a domain name. <laughs> um, the, the, there's two arrows in our logo. Uh, it's yeah. very straightforward and simple. Uh, and those arrows are quite important to me. They, they're there to represent simplicity and clarity and change of direction. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, we, that's what we try to do. The, we've one arrow on, on the lower that's inverted, and, and this is to refer to the power of of change from within and, mm -hmm. and bottoms up approach to change. I call it grassroots. Yeah. Um, and, and this is quite important because quite often change, which is driven top down, is not always so successful. Yeah. But when change can come from within, um, it's a great uh, it's a great way of being successful. So tell us more about exactly what it is that you do. So we're, we're, we're relatively new. I mean, we're, we're not even two months old yet, but yeah. the thinking behind Evolveria has been three years uh, in the making, you know, gathering a lot of um, experience and thoughts. What I became fascinated with was why change fails. I have to say that this was the driver behind it all. And hence why I haven't set up my own retail business, <laughs> uh, was I was fascinated why change fails. When you think about all the gurus and all the consultancies and all the models and all the methods that exist, you know, it's a pretty well documented and described, um, let's say, discipline. Mm -hmm. But yet today, the majority of transformation fails. You know, yeah. um, about 33% the average success rate of business transformation. So despite all this knowledge, what's really making it fail? And, and um, there's many, many reasons for it. Um, but I think um, I go back to the value of doing simplicity with excellence rather than complexity with mediocrity. And that's yeah. kind of adding to my Ikeaism and, and the value of concepts. 
um, that's where I kind of, um, uh, over a couple of years, started to really document and look into why change fails, but then to start documenting what I know from my experience was successful. And the interesting thing was, it was not terribly academic. It's not terribly complicated. It's very, it's doing simplicity well. Yeah. But not just enough to have the technical um, mapping of a transformation. It's also about the connection of people. And that's why our, our, our logo is about transforming businesses and people need yeah. both to be done together in my opinion to be successful so there's something i've wondered about that especially with the statistics that you you've brought out there and business and transformational change digital transformation they're all quite important buzzwords that have been coming out a lot um and part of me wonders whether organizations feels that something they should do so they go through the process without actually having the heart and soul as to why they're doing it. Yeah. Could that be one of the reasons as to why so many of them fail? It's for sure one, one of the reasons. I mean, the, the, the term transformation has, I think, sadly become a bit of a buzzword. I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm often asked, what do you mean by business transformation? Yeah. <laughs> really, I'm often asked this question. And I have to explain a little bit what it means. I mean, it, it is, transformation is simply moving from one position to another position. Business transformation is about doing it when you're creating additional value. So profits is one way of doing value. A business assets is another way of increasing value. Uh, and then, you know, to, to make that happen, there's, a, there's different business dimensions that I, I refer to that change has to happen. So you, for example, can implement a new IT system because you believe its functionality can give you great benefits, business benefits. But you know, if, you, if it's not meeting what your organization actually needs or what your customers are actually demanding, it's a wasted investment. And actually you're creating more risk for your business in, yeah. in doing that. So, you know, I take a holistic approach and I think that's one of the key things is that often we concentrate in making a change. We call it a transformation when often it's a business improvement or a change improvement. Yeah. And we don't look holistically at the needs or effects of that in, in, in reaching what our, our value stream is, customer yeah. orientated or not. So that's really one of the key things. We don't look enough holistically. And that's why our concept is, is, is described as an end-to-end -end concept because we take mm -hmm. it from, first of all, a strategic objective, usually is leading the transformational need. We look at it and, and, and really dig deep into all aspects of it because most often the success of a transformation is formed at the start and not yeah. during the process. So you can often go in the wrong direction or take the wrong track or not think through all the consequences uh, early in the process. And we, we put a lot of effort into the start of that. Mm. Um, and then I think the other thing is that often transformation is delivered by other people in organizations. And that's not, that's one of my lessons is that that's not necessarily the most successful way. Okay. So our, our idea is, is not to come and do your transformation for you. Our idea is to come and share simple proven mythologies, uh, put it into a concept of end-to-end -end approach, Mm. And then to, to educate and then coach organizations in utilizing that. Uh, and by so keeping it simple, yeah, a little bit, yeah, like shadow consultancy probably would be the word I'd use. Yeah. And by, by having it simple, you've got greater chances of success, but it's also more accessible for people to adopt and understand in their everyday behavior. Mm -hmm. And what often can happen is if you have a consultancy, let's say they even make a successful business transformation happen, they walk away at the end of it to their next client. And often the intelligence, the knowledge, and the commitment goes with them. Um, yeah. and, uh, and I believe to be sustainable and to give you the foundation for continual improvement, it is better that organizations make transformation happen themselves. Yeah. So we're not here to, to deliver a transformation. We're here to support organizations and businesses reach their own goals. Is there anything that business can do to prepare themselves for that change before that first? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think um, there's a, there's a, it's really valuable to do a diagnostic mm -hmm. of the current situation and the future situation and yeah. what that means across many dimensions of your business to move successfully to, to make the change happen. Often that diagnostic, and here's where I think external input is extremely valuable because often when you're 
looking at your critically at yourself and your own organization and business you're not critical enough yeah <laughs> i think the the value of external pair of eyes mm. not necessarily to tell you what needs to be done but to really clarify what you're doing and mm. the value you think the other thing i often have seen um fail because when i'm giving you these quotations of of, of success rates of change it's not about making the change happen it's about meeting the expectations of the of the change yeah so many times I see projects initiated or changes initiated on the basis of a business case. Mm. And this change usually means an investment. And these business cases just so happen to show very optimistic returns on investment, very optimistic times in delivering these changes. Mm. And sometimes those need to be moderated and challenged and understood. Uh, and I think we'd um, often be more successful in our rates of change by having um, it's not. It's perfectly okay to have high ambition. That's not what I'm talking about. That's yeah. that's actually necessary. Mm. But to have a sort of um, a, a real understanding that uh, what you're striving to achieve is feasible, is possible, or at least timelines to expect. Because when you make change happen, you often go through a productivity dip before you see the benefits. Yeah. Um, and, and there's a maturity that's needed in the transformation before you see the real return of investment. Mm. And quite often, and particularly when we're cost consciously driven, we're always looking for the quick fix, the silver bullet that makes the change happen. And uh, um, it's not to say that we shouldn't be ambitious in the changes because you shouldn't initiate if you don't see the benefits. Mm. But um, often we can, for our own internal reasons, um, create our own problems at the start just by over-promising and under-delivering and yeah. putting that into our roadmap. <laughs> so that that also brings about a question for me. So you've got the ambitious, which agree with you 100% there. Um, but then it, it's around the actual, the, the business case that you mentioned of maybe over-promising what it is that you're looking for. Do you think that we have a tendency of being over-optimistic to make sure that it gets accepted? as a business case to take forward? I mean, I've, I've physically seen project scope documents and business cases designed to make sure that there is at least on paper a return on investment. Wow. I mean, I've seen that many yeah. times over. And I think that's often the, 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 the root cause of many problems. Yeah. Because the project is, uh, or program is, is doomed for failure right from yeah. the start. Okay, yeah. You know? um, Sometimes, I, for example, I'll go back to IKEA again. They, they, they took a slightly different approach to things. You know, they would experiment and see what was possible before they made big change happen. So the value of piloting program or a new thing is really valuable. A pilot should be about the change being, let's say, organizational ready, meaning you can roll it out widely and quickly. But the true test of a pilot is to um, really understand what's the business decision the yeah. correct in the first place. Uh, and quite often we, we try to rush through that part um, in, in, in change. And that can often be the big downfall. Yeah. Okay. So you've just released your list of partners, if I'm correct. <laughs> I did, yeah. Can you tell us about that? Because I had a look and it looks like quite a powerful house you've got there. I'm really grateful that you think that and see it. I've, um, <laughs> we, took a, we took a very conscious decision at the start. We're, we're about creating a brand, actually. Um, yeah. I never wanted this to be the Paul Glass change management or transformation consultancy. Yeah. There's a long-term long term business idea behind having a brand um, which works with a conceptual model. Mm -hmm. um, so initially, um, I knew that I, I wanted to work in partnership. I really believe in one plus one can equal three. I don't have all the answers, um, but I do have uh, quite a network of highly capable uh, people. And I'm glad you've seen that. They, these yeah. are real, genuine, world-class people. They've got a proven experience for me, which is super important. So it's, it's really important for me that the experience can guide and um, they've all done it, been there and done it. And the thing is they're not stuck in the past because success has come from the past. They're very future orientated people. So even though they've got 25 or 30 years experience in big business and, and, and really great disciplines, these are not people that stand still. They're always yeah. learning, innovating and hopefully you saw that in their prof profiles. Definitely. 
But when we launched the business, um, I thought it was important not to distract the message of the brand or getting the name out there mm. by dominating it with people. But our whole idea is to work as freelance independent consultants in partnership with each other. Yeah. And based on clients' needs, we bring in different skills and capabilities and competences to, to, to support organizations make change happen. And yeah. I think the curious thing is, there's a good blend of business intelligence and people intelligence in that. Group. Yeah, yeah, I saw that, yeah. Yeah, that's um, important. And although um, uh, I'm based in the north of Scotland, the company's registered in London, mm-hmm. you'll also see that I bring and I value greatly international expertise, people yeah. that, have, that are working in other cultures and other areas. Um, and because of technology, it's great because we can actually support <laughs> clients without needs for expensive flights or anything like that. Um, you know, I think there's, there is a value in being physically present with a client. Mm. But um, there's also um, the possibilities now to support clients in, in different ways. And it doesn't matter for me that two of them are based in Zurich or Stockholm. Yeah. Uh, they, they can still add value to the client's needs. So tell me how, tell me what makes an excellent change consultant or transformation consultant, whichever terminology is used nope. for, for people like you that come in and, and help the businesses. Well, I think if you ask that question to anybody in, in my sector, you're probably going to get completely different answers. Probably, <laughs> probably, probably resonating you're the alone. expert, so let's, let's hear your definition. <laughs> well, because then this is maybe what other people need to listen to when they try to find someone to, to come yeah. in and help their business. <laughs> good point. I, I think, um, well, first of all, you, 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 you need to, I think you do need to have a degree of, of business intelligence um, or sensitivity to business. I think you need to be very curious if you're coming from the outside. We, we look from the outside yeah. in and we're naturally curious people. So we might want to find out certain things or ask certain questions or look at certain things in a certain way. So I think you've got to have a, a natural curiosity. You've got to have a little bit of experience, I think, um, because doing everything from a theory 3D route uh, again is my, my experience is it's not that successful yeah. um, it, it needs to come from that but I think the, 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 the best advice I can give for somebody looking for somebody to come in and support with transformation is um, a real deep understanding of the values and purpose of the business that's yeah. the why is so important um, and then to look at the internal capabilities of the organization what exists already what can you build on? What do you need to start from scratch with? Um, so I think you need to have quite a sensitive person um, that's quite got a lot of antenna, picking up lots of things because we need to move quickly usually. Yeah. Um, I think, um, in, in my opinion, my, my, my strong belief is somebody that's um, got quite a high EQ and EQ set. They yeah. don't even exist. So the, the, the importance of being able to understand technical solutions and complexity but also the ability to relate to people and their fears, because fear is the biggest um, obstacle we have yeah. in expressing potential. So I think there's this curious blend of high IQ and high EQ together in one person. And they do exist, but there's not so many of us. Yeah. Um, and I think the ability to inspire is quite important because, you know, let's be honest, if somebody's wanting to make big change happen, it's either because they're in a difficult situation and they need yeah. to change, or they've got a great idea and a great uh, scalable model that they want to maximize. Yeah. It's, it's usually between these two things. Nobody makes a new strategy happen to keep on doing the same old thing. Yeah. <laughs> and you need to be quite sensitive to both those things. So we, 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 we don't advertise who our clients are. We don't speak about our clients because in both cases, there's a sensitivity there, uh, which is that business's competitive advantage so we're very silent about that you won't see you'll never see even though we're just started you'll never see big case studies from us yeah Um, so i think about respecting the client is super important being prepared to be challenging but also supportive and inspirational and to show that simple things done well can be more effective than very much complexity that you often hear about from all these gurus and yeah you know, we haven't invented anything. We've just taken the greatest hits of good practice yeah. and put it into something that's digestible for an organization to yeah. work with. So what advice do you have to companies that have experienced poor business transformation practices? Very good, very good question. Um, because I think um, 
I mean, generally, the majority of people that have gone through big change have not been successful. Yeah, so, exactly. they, so they will be quite sceptical about uh, the added value that you can mm -hmm. bring. I, I strongly believe that we pay ourselves over many, many times over because we reduce risk of failure. It's as simple yeah. as that. Um, so I, I think um, people should be very honest about understanding where the change went wrong. Mm -hmm. There's two vital things in an organisation, I would say. First of all, did the leadership culture, did it, in, did it provide the, the, let's say, the, the space to make change happen correctly? And secondly, did the leadership culture allow the organisation or enable the organisation to be involved in change? And often mm -hmm. it can be these two things which have, have gone wrong. So I think you, I really do think in the value of outside in looking when change has gone wrong to understand it. And it's always possible to correct poorly made change. It's always possible. Yeah. Um, but not to, uh, but to, to not react based on not meeting your expectations because maybe your expectations are wrong in the first place. Yeah. So it's, it's good to really understand it. Um, that would be couple of key bits of advice um, but, but not to look negatively at change in the future because you know it's a constant it's one constant we have in life is change. <laughs> exactly you know, it's a, it's, it, that's said so many times before yeah, <laughs> but change, <it's> true. <laughs> yeah, change is the thing that we fear the most and pe yeah. as people as humans uh, and it doesn't need to be like that because I, I genuinely look at change as an opportunity to do something better every single time and a positive mindset to change is super important. So even if change has gone wrong in your organization, you shouldn't be negative towards the demands of change. It's so easy, in, particularly in this time with the pandemic, that uh, people are, are looking negatively at their current situation. But yeah. there are many opportunities out there. Um, a crisis does make you stronger, an old saying in IKEA, and it's absolutely true. Um, and if you can be even moderately successful in today's environment, just mm -hmm. imagine how successful you'll be when things return to some sort of normality. Quite right. Quite right. I really want to hear about what you've got planned in October because it, it just sounds like such an amazing initiative and what a way to pay it forward. Um, so, could you tell us about it, please? Yeah, so, um, I mean, we're still, I would say, establishing ourselves, making people aware that we exist. Um, yeah. And within team being announced now, I, I, I can now really not show off the competence, but I can really demonstrate the, the competence that we have. Mm -hmm. So we're still, um, we've not really gone out and targeted clients, to be honest, so far, but we will start um, trying to engage more with clients. Mm -hmm. uh, we have some interest already, um, and, uh, you know, our hope, for us, success is about not spending a lot of time with the clients. So we're not talking about many months' work with individuals. Our success is how quickly we can do things for a client. Yeah. So um, I really hope to, to start building up uh, our client base over October. We hopefully will have one or two new additional names to, I can't say too much at the moment, but some excellent people hopefully will join us also in October. Then we have to take a time out and say our team's big enough. <laughs> um, so October for me is about still strengthening further the team, but actually now starting to move out uh, a little bit into the, the, the world of the clients uh, and getting them to understand what the advantages are of working with us. You know, um, without the hard sell, we're not about hard sell. Yeah. So tell us the actual campaign, if you will, that you're you're going through in October. So um, we, we had quite an interesting advertising campaign when we first launched, which was all about connecting to businesses and organisations who were having to make strategic change based on the pandemic. That would never have been the original uh, campaign, but the campaign would have been always about the need for strategy. We, we generally would be working with organisations making strategic changes. Yeah. And if you think about it, even if you're a successful business today, you're likely to need to make strategic changes to be successful in the future. Yes. So that's um, absolutely key. Our next campaign, we, we kind of like to do things a little bit differently, a little bit of a twinkle in the eye. So we're going to be talking a lot more about um, uh, our, our capabilities rather than what the brand is and what we offer. We'll be talking about individual capabilities. We have a, we've launched a pro bono uh, scheme. Um, yeah. It was very important for me. We're quite an ethically and value driven or purpose driven organization as much as obviously wanting to have a commercial success. Mm -hmm. So we're going to be launching Pro Bono over October. Um, it is technically out there, but we're going to be advertising. And what we're trying to do with Pro Bono is offer services to 
three, organ, um, three uh, good cause organizations or charities that are focused on people, planet or society. And that yeah. will have an independent panel of uh, people decide who the organization should be that we'll work with. And it, it can be any size of organization because what we're interested in most is the organization that will benefit most from our services. So yeah. they hopefully by benefiting will create a bigger impact on people's society and planet. And yeah. it's something that's very dear to us. We'll do this every year. This isn't a stunt. This isn't a marketing mm. campaign. This is something that we built in. And it comes from um, America where, you know, if you're a lawyer there, you have by law to give a percentage of your time free to yeah. those who can't afford your professional services. Um, and we felt that this was a really good way of, of giving back uh, in our own small way. I love the concept of it and I wish more of us did do it, could do it. Um, because I've always been a strong believer, the more you give out for free, the more you get back as well. And it really helps build that trust that you are, as you said, value driven. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's five years today that the Sustainable Development Goals of the United Nations were launched. and and. You know, I think every single business could look to that and mm. and take something from that. So I totally agree with you. More businesses need to do more good. Uh, it's it's difficult because profit usually drives our, our business behaviour. Yeah. But I do genuinely believe that there's something beyond profit. You, you yeah. need to be profitable to be sustainable and healthy as a business. Yeah. But every single business can do something a little bit beyond just the, the balance sheet in making it a better life. Um, and if we look at the businesses that that are very, well, let's say long-term minded, have been around for a very long time and are very successful, profit is a way to keep the business afloat and keep it going and keep it driving. But from my experience or my perception is that it's always been people or change or environment, something out with money that's kept them going and driven that culture and that passion for, for everyone in the business. Absolutely. And, that, and that's about responding to the environment that we're, we live in as, as yeah. people. Um, you know, even, even some of the, if you look towards the fuel companies, for example, they're all now looking and diversifying into different areas, you yeah. know, more sustainably focused. And yet they still have to make a healthy profit. So even by doing good things or good deeds, you might tap into something that's a new business opportunity as well. Yeah, exactly. So early days with Evolveria, but where do you see it going in the future? Well, um, I really hope that, um, the, that we'll gain a reputation by delivering what we promise. And I, I, I do genuinely believe that no matter what your advertising campaign is, people won't experience really what you do until they work with you. Yeah. So um, I, I hope that we'll, um, uh, we offer free consultations. I hope people will already be able to use our free advice and benefit. Mm -hmm. And I hope that that will start building the trust and relationship with the brand and the people that's behind the brand. Um, and, and from that we move forward. So it's, for us, we'll always be client-focused client and it'll be our success in doing what we promise that will drive us forward. Um, but we have big ambitions, a small team, but with huge ambitions for the future. And um, that's, um, that's really what we are. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode. The Institute of Directors is in the heart of all major cities and continues to represent your point of view as a business leader, both locally and nationally. Our objective is to ensure that your views are taken into account when the government is reviewing policy, legislation, or seeking the opinions of the wider business community. If you're interested in joining the IOD, please visit www.iod.com. Also take the opportunity to listen to our other IOD podcast, Policy Voice. To join the conversation and share your thoughts in today's episode, engage with us on Twitter or join the IOD LinkedIn Scotland group. We hope the rest of your week goes well and look forward to sharing another episode with you next week. Bye.